The Rami Zaid Show, interviewing interesting people so people can learn interesting things. Here is your host, Rami Zaid. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Rami Zaid Show, where I interview interesting people so people can learn interesting things. My guest today is David Lee. He's the CFO for Impossible Foods. Impossible Foods, frankly, is one of the, if not the hottest company on the planet right now. And I think it's because they're saving the planet by developing plant-based substitutes for meat products. David and I get into his life, a few lucky moments. I think his hard work and work ethic, for that matter, has created a lot of his luck. But what he calls lucky moments, the company Impossible Foods and what's ahead for Impossible Foods. You can find David on LinkedIn at David J. Lee, and I hope you all enjoy the show. David Lee, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Rami. Thanks for having me. I do want to start, I do quite a bit of research, or I like to think I do a bit of research before guests come on the show. And I do want to start with something fairly serious, if you don't mind, and and that is you met your wife in an acapella group. Oh, dear God. <laughs> so uh, you do your research. <laughs> so let me tell you the story. So I had never really been, frankly, serious or interested in, in singing other than, you know, maybe a church choir when I was a kid. And having grown up in this, what felt like a small town in eastern Washington state in Spokane, Washington, you know, by the time I showed up at Harvard, uh, everything just seemed larger than life. The buildings seemed taller than I had ever seen. The people were smarter. And there was this crazy thing that I'd never seen or heard, which was, you know, all of us freshmen were shuttered into Sanders Hall Theater, the, the main theater there. And there were these acapella groups and they weren't like 1920s, you know, barbershop quartet groups. I mean, they were all male or all female and, and a couple of co-ed groups and they were singing pop songs that were popular back in the ancient history that I attended college. And they were rock stars. I mean, you know, people were a little gaga over them and it just seemed fun. And so like everything I do, I decided to throw caution to the wind and I auditioned and I conned my way into it. You know, these are all people who had great pedigrees in being well-trained and, you know, all state choirs and all the rest. And so I go in to this group called the Veritones, and I, I really wanted to do a co-ed group because they seemed. What was the fun. name, Dave? You said again. What was the, the name? Harvard Radcliffe Veritones? Veritones, so dorky. And you know, <laughs> I wanted a co-ed group because I thought they had more fun. And I walk in, and they're all very serious, and you know, they hand you a sheet of paper, and they're like, you know, sing this. And you know, I can't sight sing. I can't sight read. So I caught my way into it. I said, of course, I can sing this. Everyone here can sing this, but. You want more than that, you know, you want a certain tone, you want a certain style, like you should sing me this little part. And then, of course, I'll sing it the way you want. Complete horse crap, because I couldn't <laughs> sight sing. So some tenor, I didn't even know I was a tenor, some tenor sang the part, uh, I sang it back. And I kept on doing that. And you know, these groups are serious. They're like seven or eight sessions where you get called back and then you get to the final session and it's down to you and some other person with your voice part and you know they're listening very closely and at that point they knew uh, i knew as well that the gig was up you know they're like you can't read music and then i just coughed it up i'm like nope 
but you know, they are desperate for someone with my part. And apparently it was good enough. And so, and I went and Susan, the woman who would be uh, come my wife, who's a few years, my junior saw me on stage. That's how she, I think it's the first time she saw me. And thank goodness, because the rest is history with uh, a 20 year marriage so far and a couple of girls. So you're right. You do your research well. <laughs> I love that, David. Now for the audience, acapella, that, there's five different, if I have it right, because I was not in the acapella group, but it's soprano, alto, tenor, baritone, and bass, correct? Yeah. Uh, you know, that was ancient history for me, but I still think that's true. <laughs> and you, you said you were a tenor. I was, apparently. I had no idea. And apparently a high one, I guess that's part of the, and you know, honestly, luck like that has been a recurring thing for me personally and professionally. It also, I mean, the, the only serious thing about doing that crazy, dorky, embarrassing acapella group is that, you know, you're booking gigs, you're, you're literally dealing with close harmony of like prima donnas who, you know, sung their entire lives. And so kind of playing the role of, getting people to calm down about who gets a solo and figuring out how to cut that next album and what part of the world we were flying to. It was my first experience kind of in general management that I loved. And it's, it's a big part, Rami, it was a turning point. It's a big part of the reason why I didn't do what I thought I was. I thought I was going to be a medical doctor, like both, both my parents are MDs, but that was one of those moments where it was so much fun you know, booking revenue, trying to think in the in the headset of the customers who were going to pay us and do marketing that uh, it kind of changed my direction in my career. I love that. And I assume, are you still, do you still follow the, the Veritones as much as I guess possible? Are they still around? You know, it was one of those college things where it, it seemed so fun and cool in college. And, you know, I'm not, I have to admit, other than watching my kids watch Glee on TV, you know, I'm, I, I'm not a hardcore, you know, I don't sing in, in a group as a 48 year old, but uh, I've fond memories for sure. And that group's still going strong and, you know, traveling the world and those young folk persist as we did uh, so many years ago. That's fantastic, David. I, um, before we, uh, you know, we're here early on a California morning, the sun is rising. And I'm assuming that most mornings you're not sitting here doing a podcast with the sun rising. But I wanted to know, you know, what do you have any routines in the morning, David? How do you get up and get your day started? Do you have a, a set or is it more mayhem? Well, I mean, there is a set, but still is mayhem. I tend to rise pretty early. I like the idea of nowadays with my home office being where I work constantly. I, I like the idea of having a minute before everyone else is awake. And so uh, this isn't too early for me. And, you know, having a cup of coffee and the ability to see ahead. Uh, one of the artifacts of COVID is part of my routine, which I love, is I get the chance to make breakfast for my, my 13-year-old and my 10-year-old daughter, which I never could do. You know, I think I flew 250,000 miles, you know, every year for the last five years, except for this year. And so, uh, part of that routine is spending a little bit of time with the family, a little bit of quiet time, a little time with the family, and then work takes over. Is breakfast, dad making the breakfast, is it the same breakfast every time or do you do you mix it up? You know, I'm uh, I'm a servant to the kids and maybe like their dad, they're creatures of habit. So it does feel like other than the occasional chocolate chip pancake on a weekend, it's it's pretty much consistent. 
But, you know, I, it's one of the great joys for me is, is spending time with family, but also cooking with them. It, um, there are a few things in life where my brain turns off and I don't worry or think about everything I'm doing professionally. And cooking is one of those great joys. So even if it's only 5, 10, 15 minutes in the morning, it's, it's a nice way to start the day. I will agree with you on the, on the cooking aspect. I am a, a wannabe chef, but, you know, it's definitely a therapeutic uh, process, you know, to put everything together. And hopefully you're talking with your kids at the same time. And there's a little bit of social interaction. You're forgetting about those, you know, 15, 16, 17 hour days you're putting in, you know, at the office or in this case, you know, at your home office. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the great thing about the time you spend with your family and friends when you're cooking is it's something that you can do frequently. You know, the other activities I love that allow me not to think about the the crush of work it takes more effort like walking a golf course i'd love to do but it's hard to find you know three to five hours in order to do it so so cooking is one of those everyday ways to reconnect well speaking of cooking and before we get into impossible foods which i think a lot of people would love to hear about impossible foods was not technically your first food company was it david yeah. So, wow, you really do research. I try. I spent nearly nine years at a company here in, in the Bay Area called Del Monte Foods, you know, and it's a stunning contrast to Impossible Foods, you know, a hundred year old brand. And during the course of those years, we kind of tripled the business, multi-billion dollar public company, and eventually led the sale for it to be taken private. And I had every different job imaginable every six months. You know, at one point I was running the entire collection of branded food brands for a bit, um, but I spent also a lot of time in finance and in corp dev and strategy. And for me, it uh, left a strong impression that, that the broader food industry desperately needed what I didn't realize then was something like Impossible Foods, a brand that was built without the history and inertia that a lot of these large food companies are facing. Uh, that are kind of built for the future. And I, I looked, you know, for years after leaving Impossible, I went on to do other things at other companies. But as I were, I was at these other companies, I kept on looking back at food. It just, it, it was very compelling to me that there was a change that could, could happen, needed to happen, which is the reason why um, I joined Impossible. I think you mentioned earlier, you meant uh, leaving Del Monte, not impossible. I didn't right. <laughs> yeah, there no. was an announcement you were making here. On the no, 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 no. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm very committed to impossible. No, I, I meant leaving Del Monte for, at the time I joined a mentor named Sharon McCullum, who had been on my board when we were public. She had turned around as the chief operating officer of many retail companies. Well, she came out of retirement and decided to turn around Best Buy as not just the CFO, but someone who is running product and IT and um, what we call omni-channel, which is really their, their very nascent e-commerce business back then. And I uh, wanted to tilt at another windmill uh, with somebody I trusted. So I joined her and I ran corporate finance and strategy and corp dev. And we, we did that Best Buy turnaround, which thankfully was an extremely fast turnaround. I think we were the number one or number two fastest rising stock in the S&P uh, those couple of years uh, that we turned that around. Was that, David, that was around 2013, is that correct? Yeah, I think that was around 2013, maybe 2012 as well. It, you know, when you spend three winters in Minneapolis, you know, you tend to sometimes forget <laughs> the exact <laughs> time period, but it was thrilling. It was a very different, you know, the, the Del Monte transformation took nearly nine years for me, but 
to see things happen so quickly at Best Buy in probably, I would say that that transformation was in its core, maybe two years long with continued future success. So, yeah. So I was there in at the end of 2012 until 2014. Understand, and then you were with Singa in between. I, I believe Best Buy and Impossible, correct? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the it's hard to keep track, even for me. But the full chronology is, you know, a- after college, I went to Chicago and I worked in advertising. Oh, okay. I think I made eighteen thousand dollars a year at this company called the Leo Burnett Company, this big private ad agency, and um, I loved marketing. I think it it was an extension of what I loved doing in college, and. And by the way, my family come, I come from a generation of medical physicians or uh, Asian medicine providers. And uh, for me, it was a big deal to, I even took my MCATs at all my pre-med requirements while majoring in political science, which was called government at the college I went to. So it was a big deal to, to be penniless, nearly penniless in Chicago on my own and be in advertising for four years. But it was because I loved so much the idea of consumer-driven businesses and marketing. But I did that. I, I then went to McKinsey and, and learned a lot more about strategy and operations and finance. And you know, the, hard, the interesting thing, this is another artifact of luck, just like meeting my wife. So I was at the Leo Burnett company and uh, McKinsey called and they said, listen, we only hire at the associate level folks who have their MBAs or their JDs or their PhDs. You know, It's the postgraduate level. The analyst level is what we hire out of college. But, you know, you've been at this Leo Burnett company for four years and we're beginning to experiment with, you know, are, is, are there any folks who could be an associate at postgraduate level role who doesn't have the graduate degree because it would allow us to broaden our pool? So I was one of maybe three associates they experimented on. I think I probably did three times the number of case interviews as the average candidate. And, you know, they kind of treated me once I got hired the way they treated someone with a PhD in literature. I mean, they sent me to Europe in a mini MBA led by INSEAD professors, and uh, it was a crash course for me. I ended up still getting my MBA uh, at Booth, the University of Chicago, because I'm stubborn, but I ended up having to do it, you know, at nights and on weekends, because from McKinsey's perspective, I was already in the role. But from my perspective, while I probably learned more at McKinsey than I did in getting my MBA, I, I just, I always wanted not to be limited. So it's another good example of that. That was absolute luck and maybe a little bit of, you know, hard work that allowed me to, uh, to go to McKinsey even before I had an MBA. So that said, I mean, given your, your background, which, which frankly is fascinating with marketing, advertising, the pressure from family on MD. Now you are CFO for one of the hottest startups in the world right now. Would you say, yes, I'm a finance man, or yes, I am a advertising man? I guess at the end of the day, there's head and heart. Do they, do they lie in the same spot? Well, I'll tell you, I think one of the great things about being a CFO, you know, my first public company CFO role was at Zynga, and I saw this then. I saw this as the number two uh, at Best Buy, and even back at Del Monte, is that the role of a CFO, or frankly, anyone in finance, can be one where you're helping organizations and operators make better decisions, whether they're marketers or they're salespeople or they're ops general managers. And I think if you can convince your counterparty, if you're a CFO, that that's your job. Your job isn't to be the bean counter or the control compliance person alone. Those things are important. 
but your job is to help the company make better decisions, then having uh, experience walking in their shoes, having, you know, run a PL and led marketing campaigns, been, you know, for my case, in a, at an ad agency, it makes it that much more, it's, it's more easy, frankly, to be able to speak their language and understand what they're thinking about and the pressures they have. I don't think other roles are like that. I, I think to a varying degree, every role is cross-functional. I, I think I, I really valued when I was running marketing at, at Del Monte, the fact that I had a brief stint at McKinsey and in venture capital from a finance standpoint, but not to the same degree, I think, that a lot of these roles can benefit, particularly a CFO. I would say to answer your question, though, I am a marketer at heart and a CFO by training. There's no question. I, When I watch the Super Bowl, I'm much more interested in watching the ads just as a, a legacy of having made some of those ads back in the early part of my career. And so for me, I, I think I'm more of a problem solver and you know, I, I'll take any seat on the rocket ship if, uh, if I can create value. That's awesome. Do you think looking back, David, what you've been doing now and, and we just you know, had a brief history of your past, is there a moment or tipping point where you said, yeah, this is, this is the path that I am going to take and that's why you're sitting here now? Is there a certain moment or memory that you can think of or look back to? Yeah, I can think of a few. I think, I think one we already talked about, which was the path away from what my family wanted uh, and what you know, my family history had been, which was, which was in healthcare. I think another moment uh, could very well have been, you know, when I was at Leah Burnett. And candidly, a big part of my decision to push for leaving advertising, because I loved doing it, was I kept on in- encountering these questions that I didn't know how to solve. You know, I-, I remember there was a gentleman, an executive at General Motors, and we were launching a car for them uh, named Ron Zarella. And he had asked, the Burnett Company, the Leah Burnett Company, you know, could the organizational structure of brand management apply to running a car business? And for some, for some reason, that question came to me to answer. And candidly, I didn't know how to answer the question well. And so that was a big turning point where, you know, you there are just moments when you realize that you you want a skill or a competence, an experience that you don't have and leaving advertising, you know, going to McKinsey, getting my MBA, even if I had to do it through more effort than most, I think set me up for what came after, which were a series of big transformations where I'm very comfortable parachuting into an existing situation and thinking about it on a first principled way that may not seem logical. Like very few people thought Best Buy can be turned around. And frankly, most retailers have it. But, you know, I repeatedly, I've seen benefit in looking at situations, not from the perspective of history, but from the perspective of uh, what is actually here today and, and what could be built. And for consumer driven businesses like Impossible Foods, like Zynga, like Del Monte, like Best Buy, for me, it's always started with where is the consumer going to go? And is it possible for our financial model, our business model, to be good at delivering that? You know, it's a very simple set of questions, but I think unless you have a history of breaking rules and parachuting into situations where people are not expecting good outcomes, um, it can be hard to get out of the everyday, out of the playbook that a lot of great companies end up being in. 
then we'll go to impossible. How did you find impossible or vice versa? Well, I have to tell you, I'm, I like to say I'm three for four in large company, public company, consumer transformations. And, you know, I think um, oddly, we haven't discussed it, but oddly, I, I was part of the big turnaround at PG&E and Del Monte and, and Best Buy. Those are the three good ones. But while Zynga is actually doing quite well now, and a lot of what we were hoping for back then uh, is played out, um, while I was at Zynga, I didn't see it come to fruition in my own time. In fact, I just recently um, had a chance to catch up with Mark Pincus, the uh, founder of Zynga, and we're both gratified that a lot of what we talked about back then has has been under the leadership of Frank Jabot come to pass because he's done a great job. But back then, you know, I was yet to deliver. And at the same time, I desperately had been looking for something that could be transformative in food, as I mentioned from my Del Monte days. So I had breakfast. It was actually Susan, so this is why uh, Susan seeing me on stage back in my days at Harvard was so fortuitous. So, so Susan knew a gentleman named Samir Call. Samir is um, a, a lead partner at the Node Coastless firm, and they had invested in Pat in 2011. And you know, I think Susan said, "Listen, you should have breakfast with my husband uh, David. He has done a lot of stuff in food and retail, and a little bit of consumer tech." So we had lunch on. Sand Hill Road. And, you know, we were just more talking about the fact that our kids go to the same school. But he said, you know, listen, you should meet Pat. And Pat Brown, the founder of Impossible Foods, and I met, um, we met many times, we had long meals. Uh, that's how I ended up becoming the chief operating officer of Impossible Foods, um, was really through Susan's connection to Samir. And, you know, as much a social breakfast about how our kids were doing, uh, which is, again, a, yet another example of how good luck may be better than hard work in some cases, because that was very fortuitous. You know, one, one of the things that I've realized about the approach I've taken in my career is that if you choose to be a bit of a generalist, if you choose to be in marketing and sales and finance and strategy, what you do is you broaden the opportunities for good luck to happen uh, because you're, you're opening the top of the funnel on experiences, people you'll meet, it's risky because you're you're betting that you can parachute into a function or an industry, learn it effectively and deliver. But it has the, the benefit of, of that risk taking has the benefit of meeting more people across different walks of life, uh, which I think is I've really been fortunate to have had some benefit from. Yeah, no, absolutely. So jumping into impossible, impossible foods, I don't think there's a, a person on the planet that has not... Uh, seen an ad for Impossible Foods, heard about them, nor probably tasted the food itself. But give me, give us a, a little bit of color on on the company now, what you guys are doing, growth plans, uh, just kind of a, a 360 degree view of Impossible Foods. Yeah, I mean, I, listen, the company Impossible Foods really is now the rocket ship that we all hoped it would be when I started five years ago, when when Pat founded the company nearly nine years ago. If, if I think back, even in my own time, first as the chief operating officer and then the CFO, you know, five years ago when I started, we were a group of tremendous scientists and maybe a couple of business people. We weren't exactly sure how to go to market or what a brand would be or how we would make the product at scale. We didn't have regulatory clearance, um, but we had this incredible mission. And, you know, in the course of the last five years from, you know, launching at 
David Chang's restaurant, Momofuku Nishi in New York, you know, launching with Michelin starred chefs like, like David Chang and Tracy Desjardins and Michael Simon and, and pretty much a large group from who you watch on the, on the cooking channel, if you watch that show um, or that channel to, you know, surprising folks by saying, Hey, we're not just for uh, those who believe in great food. We're, we're for everybody, you know, launching a white castle where people buy 70 to 80 cent beef sliders and, and having, you know, having them purchase impossible sliders, entirely plant-based better for you, better for the environment sliders that use 96% less land and, a fraction of the water and produce a fraction of the greenhouse gases. And, and to see 90% of our customers be meat eaters, you know, where it's not the plant-based eater that we're attracting, we're attracting the, the, the heart of the market, um, which by the way, just to cover it in case your listeners don't know, the whole reason why we have to attract meat eaters is our mission is to make every meat eater happily eat a plant-based product versus meat from an animal by 2035. And we mean that literally every meat eater globally should have that opportunity. And, and we think we have to pave the way with a great brand and technology that delivers an increasingly better product. And I would say even this year has been amazing. You know, COVID has been such a tragedy uh, for the world, but, you know, we had the opportunity to adjust to where meat eaters wanted to buy meat, and that was in grocery stores. So we started this year, 2020, with 150 grocery stores, and we're going to be at, you know, well, I think today we're over 11,000 grocery locations in, in nine months and many more to come. So it's been phenomenal for me to see an idea that Pat created, a, a, a critical idea, something the world needs nearly nine years ago, and then to be part of the ability to almost, the way I think about it is we gave birth to a business and this business is no longer, it's no longer an infant. I mean, it's on its way. It's been phenomenal to see. It frankly is. And, and you know, question for you, I noted, uh, I think it was back in July of this year, you were in an interview with Jeff Thompson at Forbes and you said that, I would say not so many words. You said, when you started Impossible, you were worried if customers would would be the meat eaters or not, and worried if the scalability of the economics and supply would happen. And that really didn't worry you as much now, saying now in July of 2020. What, David, as CFO of the company, what are some worries, if any, for you now uh, with the companies you're scaling so fast? Well, it's interesting. I, I think in that interview, you're right. Like everything was my worry five years ago, frankly. You know, product market fit. You know, we've raised $1.3 billion since I started in the last five years. So the financeability of uh, the mission we wanted, how do we make the product? Do we, do we get regulatory approval? Well, meat eaters like it. These were all questions. And, and we burned the candle at both ends. You know, we launched the product before we really knew how to make it at scale. And, you know, we, we believed in, in the fact that we would get regulatory approval at the highest standard, you know, fervently before it happened. And thank goodness it did. You know, looking forward today as the CFO, my concerns and worries are no longer about technology or product market fit. They're really around scaling the business well. It's really about execution. You know, will we, when we launch in Europe and mainland China, and, you know, when we launch the next version of our product that, you know, we've been working on for years, Will we do it with as much good fortune and excellence that we did our first product? 
you know, four years ago. And that comes down to, you know, people, process, and systems, right? It's always those three things for a company globally scaling to operate well. And I worry about all three of them. You know, I worry about the fact that we're growing so vast. It, it's, it's hard sometimes not to outgrow the great people you have. And I think our mission helps us there because, because of our mission, they, uh, even if they are potentially outgrown, they, they're here for the long haul and they're willing to take on other roles. I, I worry about our systems. We're, you know, upgrading them constantly and we need to because no one's seen the growth uh, in food anyway that we've seen so far and that we will see. The, the slope of this growth uh, path we're on does not diminish even as we enter this, you know, multi-trillion dollar global market we're in. And so, you know, people, systems, and then, you know, will our process, will we operate like an old bureaucratic company, the companies that I used to parachute in and rip apart processes and try to create entrepreneurial growth? And, you know, we got to make sure we keep our culture so that when we operate uh, with each other, it's efficient, but it, it doesn't become mundane. Those are the things I think that we were worried about today. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. I guess I'm jumping jumping over to, I don't know if you would call it a side hustle or, or not, David, but you just recently uh, joined the board of a company called App Harvest. Could you tell us a little bit about App Harvest and what they're doing? Sure. So App Harvest is a fabulous company. I'm super excited about um, what Jonathan Webb, the founder, is doing. So App Harvest was founded in central Appalachia in Kentucky. And it was built to create a renaissance, not just, you know, for the environment. It, it was built to create a renaissance economically for a part of the country that has suffered as coal mining jobs uh, have no longer become relevant. So App Harvest is, is building at scale uh, industrial scale climate controlled farms in the heart of Appalachia, which gives it the ability to serve, you know, produce this great produce that is high quality. It doesn't have any chemicals. It uses a fraction of the water that people are going to be willing to pay a premium for because it's going to be the best tasting produce manageable. And it, they're going to do it by creating jobs in a renewable way in a part of the country that needs good old fashioned capitalism. We recently announced, I think last week, that we're going public through a SPAC. And I feel lucky to be a part of a board uh, that includes Martha Stewart and Jeff Ubbin, who had founded Value Act and is now really focused on social impact investing uh, through inclusive capital, JD Vance, you know, many others. Uh, and, and it's something you want to root for, whether you're on the left or the right, whether you, know, you eat meat or you're plant-based, it, it's just one of those companies that need to do well. I feel lucky and I'm super excited. It, and for me, you know, having for a short time around the Del Monte fruit and vegetable business and with my time spent at other places like Impossible, I'm, I'm really hopeful that I can help that team as a board member. That sounds extremely exciting, David. Was that another, you know, you call it luck. I, I think, frankly, most know it's, it's a lot of hard work on your end. But how did you fall into to App Harvest? Was it something similar to Impossible? Just right place, right time? Well, you know, one of the things I really believe is that mentors don't pick mentees, if you will, that those who seek mentorship go find, knock down doors and find mentors proactively. I think that's a, maybe a bigger impact on opportunity than uh, hard work or uh, merit alone. You know, I don't think cream rises to the top on its own. It's pulled up 
by leadership or it's pushed up by people who believe in you and, and want to follow you. And in the case of App Harvest, it was because I had met the chair of the board, Jeff Ubbin, who I mentioned, you know, years prior, Jeff was a very successful, is a very successful investor, having founded and been the CEO of Value Act. And I met him in that context, you know, as, as somebody who uh, has been a CFO of public companies and, and, and at a Possible Foods, you're constantly meeting investors. And what distinguished, you know, the brief meeting I had with Jeff uh, really was the fact that he bets on on people and you know he had begun at that point to start to think about how does he dedicate the remainder of his career to to create value not just financial value but to create positive externalities economists say to create businesses like impossible or app harvest that are going to make a, a huge return for investors but are going to make a difference in the world in january or so he left value act but i thought was just so courageous you know top of his game to, to found inclusive capital. And one of the companies that he uh, bet on was App Harvest. And so, you know, in, in talking with Jeff kind of post the, the initial meeting a couple of years ago, I think, you know, having a mutual interest in using financial return, using capitalism for good, really, I just felt uh, interested in working with them, frankly. And App Harvest happened to be the right uh, first opportunity to, to be a colleague of his on the board. Uh, and then as I spent more time with Jonathan Webb and and even, you know, there are little coincidences in life. You know, Marcella Butler, who had been our chief people officer at Impossible Foods, moved to Kentucky and joined them as their chief people officer. So it just seemed clear, as it has been in lots of different circumstances so far in my career, that this was the right thing to go leap at. And to be able to do it while I am fully engaged full time at Impossible Foods uh, has been a blessing as well. So yeah, I'm very excited about App Harvest. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like David, I mean, net of uh, COVID, which has obviously shocked the world to say the least, but it sounds like, you know, today your 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 immediate family's healthy, you were with Impossible, you just jumped on board App Harvest. You're, you're at a pretty exciting period in your lifetime right now, it sounds like. I feel grateful. You know, I, I look at the hardships that, others have had in this year alone. And I feel lucky. This year, you know, we all have our own forms of hardship this year. Um, my parents were hit by a car in the year and my wife fell on the slope. So so we are without our own challenges, but nothing compared to what I'm seeing globally. So this feeling of gratitude, I'm thankful for, um, as is my family. Fantastic. Well, if, if you don't mind, David, I was going to jump into just some We'll call it fun, rapid-fire questions as we as we wrap up uh, sure. we'll call it our morning session here. The, the first, frankly, you know, you said marketer at heart, head of a CFO, but as a CFO, is there is there one thing we'll call personal that you just you don't mind spending money on? Oh, I never mind spending money on learning what the consumer will want. Uh, it's one of the things. First things. One of the first things I spent money on when I joined as COO five years ago is. Um, Pat had already been spending money to learn where meat eaters uh, were going, but we took every scrap of our prototype product and put it in a uh, a consumer test with meat eaters that cost you know several hundred thousand dollars, which for a startup is unheard of at that young era. Remember, we had only at that point raised maybe 180, 200 million bucks uh, versus the 1.5 we've now raised today. But I never mind spending on consumer insights that that aren't retroactive, that, that can predict 
you know, where the consumer is going. I, I think that's critical. And what about, uh, what about you personally? Oh, what do I spend on? Yeah. Lately, I'm much more interested in spending on experiences with my family. And, and that could be anything from taking my youngest out for a, a day on the golf course to back when we could go to great restaurants, you know, treating my girls and my wife to a great meal. I, I tend not to be as focused on or interested in acquiring or investing in objects as I am in, you know, the memories I hope my family and friends will have down the road. And for me, those are things like anything around food, wine, golf. I, listen, I, I, I'm a fan of a, a good home game in poker too, because it's time spent well with friends. Uh, so those are the things that I probably spend most of my money on. Nice. Do you have a, uh, a favorite uh, quote, author, you know, anything, I guess, on the, uh, the literary end that uh, is always sticking with you? Yeah, I, I do, actually. And, you know, the more we've talked, the more I realize why I love this quote. The person who I'm going to provide, his name is Branch Rickey. He, he, was a, he was an American baseball player and, you know, he broke through barriers. He, he was the one who signed Jackie Robinson. He created a, you know, the framework for, for eventually the minor league system. And, and he has this quote, the end of which is, luck is the residue of design. And the idea is that good fortune and luck comes after all the hard work and hopefully a little bit of intelligence and the effort to reach out beyond what seems critical today. And what you're left with when you do that is good fortune. And I also love the idea of design thinking. You know, luck is the residue of design because even as we went to market, we really leveraged creative design thinking in the brand that you see with Impossible Foods. And it's what I remember doing early in my career at the Leo Burnett Company. So for me, that's always been, that knows that's always resonated with me. Luck is the residue of design. I love that. And I, I believe um, he has a well, I know there's a few books on Branch Rickey, but I think he has a pretty good autobiography as well, correct? Yeah, you know, I, I have to admit, I don't know him or can, I can't really even speak to the life he led. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always loved the quote. I've always been a little nervous in telling people it's my favorite quote because I have no idea if the person, you know, if Branch Rickey himself is someone who I would admire as much as his words. But, uh, but I do love the idea. Got it. You mentioned, you know, experiences and meals and I'll... Maybe I'll end with this fun one. So I let, let's say you're you're sitting on the electric chair, which is a little bit morbid, but you you have a uh, you have a a final meal. What would that final meal be, David? And you can, if you want to plug impossible, you can put it impossible. Uh, <laughs> well, I I would say this. That answer has changed every other week, I think. I'm still a meat eater. I'm I'm the target audience of in the impossible foods business and I've been obsessed lately with the perfect omelet. And for me, the perfect omelet is not slathered with stuff. It's literally eggs, salt, pepper made perfectly. Uh, I've been trying to actually get my daughters to claim that I'm competent at this uh, in the morning. And I'm obsessed with that because the simplicity of it, the challenge and the difference when it's made well or just in an average way is pretty significant. So for me, the perfect omelet, uh, simple French omelet would be my last meal. Well, I think we know what you're uh, making for the girls this morning, then. It's going to be that per perfect <laughs> Very omelet. Likely. Very likely. <laughs> well, David, the, the morning here has been fantastic with you. 
Is there any you know parting wor- words for the audience on you, Impossible, where to find you on social media, um, anything you want to leave with? No, I, I think I'm far less interesting than Impossible. You know, go try the product yourself. I, my favorite happens to be right now the Starbucks Impossible breakfast, but you know, more importantly, go get it in a grocery store and turn it into whatever you want. But, you know, Rami, thank you for the time. Uh, It's always fun to speak with you. And I'll be curious to see if there are any reactions from your listeners. No, thank you very much, David. Have a great uh, rest of the day. And thanks again for joining the show. All right. Take care.